Let's pray. Lord, we need the uh, great composer songs to sing. And Lord, we think of uh, the psalm that says, I run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. Lord, thank you that your word frees us. And Lord, we pray that in this, uh, this time that we have to look at your word, that you would do a work of liberation, uh, that you would do a work that releases us from the things that bind us up, that God, you would speak grace into our hearts, and that you would do that for these young ones as they go to friends of Jesus. Lord, that you would encourage and you would convict, that you would heal and that you would strengthen. And that, Lord, your word would go forth in our own lives in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Faith. Welcome to uh, a new school year. This is, uh, we also, this is kind of the launch of our new ministry year and the launch of a new sermon series. Uh, if you're here for the first time, I want to extend a particular uh, welcome to you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, our mission at Faith is to celebrate the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's what we do every Sunday in worship and uh, through the week and in our prayers. Uh, it's to build grace-filled uh, disciples, grace-filled followers of Christ, and that's we do that through our community groups and, and our uh, Soul Food Hour, which will start next week, uh, concerning uh, Bible studies and, and our D groups with our youth group. Uh, and then we also uh, seek to serve Penn Lucy, the community that uh, we are worshiping in, Baltimore and the world. Uh, it is our conviction that, that God's placed us at this particular intersection uh, in Baltimore uh, to to really reveal the beauty and the glory of Christ across the divides of race and class and generations, uh, that we might grow in grace and that we might find our place in God's kingdom for joyful service. And so we're thankful that you're here. And so today we launch the new uh, message series from uh, guarding the gospel from the epistle uh, to the Galatians that Paul wrote. Uh, the uh, the first uh, flag was one that looked like a sports flag, but this is more of a military flag. And, uh, of course, this is the famous uh, battle of uh, Iwo Jima. And uh, many, many uh, lives were lost to secure freedom. But there is a battle that's going on uh, in the, the church and in the world concerning uh, the gospel. And Paul reveals that uh, for us in this book. Now, we're going to be looking at this over the next uh, next five to six weeks, and so please uh, take some time to reflect on it. Galatians, it's been said, uh, people tend to run hot or cold considering Galatians. The great reformer, Martin Luther, said, this is my epistle. I am married to it. It is my Katie. Uh, and Luther was married to a nun uh, by the name of Catherine. Uh, and because of such, Galatians became a cornerstone epistle Protestant Reformation. And there was a writer by the name of John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and he said, I do prefer Luther's commentary on Galatians, except the Bible, before all other books I have ever seen as most fit for a wounded conscience. Now, so if, if you struggle with the loss of joy or uh, power in your relationship with God, if you feel oppressed or obsessed by the forces 
uh, within and without, if you're restless, then you can be comforted and strengthened through the study of Galatians. One scholar said the book of Galatians stands out like Mount Everest to point the way to the true living gospel of God's grace. It's been rightly called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, and it expresses Paul's manifesto of freedom for believers. It's his declaration of independence. Uh, but one, uh, uh, but some people don't like the intensity of Galatians. Others call it the crucifixion epistle, a thorny jungle, explosive, every sentence a thunderbolt. It's too emotional for some people. It's highly charged. It's like a white heat letter, and, uh, and it's just too emotional. It's too, autobiograph uh, too autobiographical, and uh, it's too intellectual. So, are you ready for some Galatians? <laughs> All right, Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, the word of the Lord. So what makes you really angry? What gets your blood boiling? Well, after Pastor Stan turned down some Ravens Redskins preseason tickets last Saturday night because he was preaching the next day, I became the happy recipient of those tickets. Now, for any Ravens or Redskins fans who saw the game, you also saw a Ravens-Redskins fight on the field where some players were ejected. Uh, but you also saw Coach John Harbaugh of the Ravens sprinting across the field uh, to break up a fight, apparently also had some few words to the opposing coach. Now, some sports commentators said that John Harbaugh needed to control his emotions. Now, I don't really know, but I do know that John Harbaugh has been a great football coach, and Baltimore Ravens has been strong under his leadership. But here's the question for you, Christ follower. What makes your blood boil spiritually? What makes you righteously angry? Now, the scriptures tell us to be angry, but do not sin. 
What would move you off of the sidelines of life and compel you to sprint across a field and confront and engage some major life-charged matter? Well, what is it? Well, Galatians makes it clear that for the Apostle Paul, it was the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Galatians, like no other letter that Paul has written, is written with such sharp language, severe words, urgent appeals, and intense correction. At the beginning of his book letter, there is no prayer, there is no praise, there is no thanksgiving or commendation like he does with other letters. In the, in the Gospel to the Romans, it says, I first thank my God through Jesus Christ for you. Or Corinthians, I always thank God for you because of the grace given you. Or Philippians, I thank my God every time I remember you. But no, Paul immediately launches into a rebuke. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by his grace and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is stunned. He is outraged. He goes straight to the problem. He rebukes and corrects him in his first opening words. He's astonished at their departure. And so here Paul is not raising some peripheral or secondary teachings or debatable doctrines or nuances of the Christian faith that sincere believers could agree or disagree upon. He emphasizes here what is at stake. It is the gospel itself. His intensity is white hot. Paul does not pull any punches. He makes the seriousness of the gospel departure powerfully clear. And he says this in verse 8 and 9. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he says, and if you didn't hear me, let me say this again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Uh, in other words, Paul is saying, let him go to hell. Let him be damned to destruction. Now, we hear these words probably every day in some form when people get angry. They don't necessarily really know what they're saying. But Paul is saying this. Paul is saying that there is a place of judgment and justice for those who preach a gospel contrary to this. Some might say that Paul is getting a bit extreme. Martin Luther King was called an extremist when he was imprisoned in the Birmingham jail for civil rights, but he said he gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label and said, was not Jesus an extremist for love? But here... Paul is an extremist. He is an, ex an extremist for the gospel, for the good news. And he was a radically committed to the purity of the gospel, the good news, and anything that attempted to alter it, tamper with it, distort it, or change it, he was up in arms. He was all up in your face. <laughs> for Paul, any attempt to add anything, even the slightest thing to the gospel, was to contaminate the whole you can't have a little bit of a counterfeit dollar or a $100 bill. It's either a real $100 bill or it's a counterfeit. But the consequences of the gospel counterfeit is not just about money. It's about eternity. The consequences are spiritually catastrophic. I call Paul's response to the Galatian situation the counter counterfeit gospel outrage. In our previous Philippians series, I encourage you to track your joy level. We had a joy meter because 
Your sense of joy, joy being that continuous, defiant, nevertheless hope in Christ is a huge spiritual fruit that we need to fight for. But the joy, as well as peace and all the fruits of the Spirit, flow from the gospel. The spring of all graces in our lives flows from this good news. So in this series, I am hoping that you will have an increased sensitivity uh, to counterfeit gospels from the real gospel. And so we have a counterfeit gospel sensitivity gauge. And my hope is that your sensitivity level and the muscles to detect the differences between the true gospel and false gospels would increase. Now you can see here, this is where the Galatians were. Paul confronts and calls these disciples, and he's calling us to be passionate for the gospel, to guard the gospel. And how are we to guard this good news? How do we protect the gospel? Well, we need to know the gospel clarity. We need to be clear about the understanding of what the gospel is. We need to know the power of gospel drift, the forces that seek to deter us or to take us away from the gospel. And we need to understand gospel authority and to anchor ourselves accordingly. So we need gospel clarity. Paul gives the gospel in these opening verses. He says, Christ, who gave himself for our sins to, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father. And so the gospel is fundamentally good news about a historical transforming event that took place. The gospel is about Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this evil age. That is the gospel. The gospel is about grace. In verse 6, he says, To him who called you in the grace of Christ. The grace is that unmerited, unearned favor of God. The gospel is something to be received. He says in verse 9, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, it's not something that you do, it's something that you are receiving. The gospel is all about the good news of Jesus Christ and nothing about the good works that we do. So John Stott says this, the gospel is good news, is the good news of a God who is gracious to undeserving sinners. In grace, he gave his son to die for us. In grace, he calls us to himself. In grace, he justifies us. When we believe, all is from God. It is all from grace. Nothing is due to our efforts, merits, or works. Trying hard, everything in salvation is due to the grace of God. This is the gospel. The gospel is fundamentally a rescue faith. He who gave himself for our sins and delivered us to deliver us or to rescue, to actually pluck us out, uh, from this present evil age. J.B. Lightfoot said the gospel is a rescue and emancipation from a state of bondage. And so Christianity is fundamentally a rescue faith. God rescues his people out of bondage in Egypt. God rescued Peter from prison and Paul from a lynch mob. Christ died to rescue us. It's been said that other founders of religions came primarily to teach, not to rescue while Jesus was a great teacher, the reason that he gave for why he came was to rescue helpless, perishing people. He says in Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came on a rescue mission. Now, uh, Maria, who's here, my wife, uh, 
she lived in high school uh, on the Outer Banks at Kitty Hawk, uh, and uh, her family had a house on the, on the beach. And she was uh, sunning herself one day uh, behind her house, and she heard a man yelling and screaming, and he had gotten caught in a riptide, and he was drowning. Uh, Maria, living there, uh, you know, known of these riptides, she took a senior life-saving, and so the last thing you do in that training is to give your body to a person that's drowning. You, you give them a stick or you give them a raft, and so she went up to her deck and she got a, a, a life raft, and, and she paddled out. Uh, the people were on the beach were watching, and and she was praying and hoping that he would not, you know, go down because then she knew that she wouldn't be able to save him. And but she gives him the rats, and they paddled back. And uh, and so there was a report in the local newspaper about this petite, uh, this petite uh, Manio high school student saves drowning man, and uh, was read on the loudspeaker in the school that day. And her English teacher gave her a role of lifesavers. <laughs> now. Now, what if Maria, instead of taking a raft out to give the man, threw the man a manual on how to swim? That is what every other religion does. Do this, and you can save yourself. Do this, and you will make it to heaven. Do this, and God will accept you. Uh, Tim Keller says that needing to be rescued means that we are far worse off than we thought. Christianity is in some sense the most pessimistic religion because it tells you how full of crap you are. You are screwing your life up and you don't even realize it. You can't do anything right. The things you even try amount to nothing in the sight of God. What do you have that you can offer him except for your sin and rejection. You need only one thing, rescue. Those being rescued don't put a lot of demands on the rescuer, do they? Those who are lifeguards know that the rescuer does have one demand for the person that needs to be rescued to give up. He won't save you unless you give up and let him do the work, and that is the same for Christ. Uh, There's a professor by the name of John Gershner. He says, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. Uh, Charles Wesley, who's written 6,000 hymns, including Oh for a Thousand, Arise My Soul, that we sing here. Uh, For many years, he sought to build his Christian faith and hope and salvation on his good works and the things that he did. But in 1738, he became rather sick and bedridden. And a man by the name of William Holland, who was a commercial painter, brought Charles Wesley a copy of Luther's commentary to the Galatians, And Charles started reading the preface aloud. At the words uh, where Luther said, What have we then, nothing to do? No, nothing, but only to accept of him whom of God is made unto us our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And Charles Wesley said, There came such a power over me as I cannot describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions perceived me so affected they fell on their knees and prayed. 
When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. And uh, William Holland, you know, after seeing this uh, response of Charles Wesley, went to the neighbors and started going to their doors and asking if he could come in and read the, you know, the preface of, the, of Luther's commentary. But that is the gospel, that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us, to deliver us from the present evil age. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. But there are great forces that try to change the gospel. There's a movement of gospel drift, we call it. And so we see that in this opening section where Paul is astonished that they were so quickly deserting him and turning to a different gospel that some were troubling them wanting to distort the gospel. And there were leaders in Galatia, and they would say, well, of course uh, you have to believe in Jesus to be a Christian, to be a, a believer, but a true believer also needs to be a good Jew. Uh, you need to follow the Jewish laws. And if you're a man and you haven't been circumcised, then you need to be circumcised. And, and I could imagine them saying, well, listen, Jesus, well, he... He was Jew. You know, he followed the Jewish laws. Jesus, he was circumcised, and Jesus is our Savior. What makes you think that you shouldn't follow him like that? You can see the reasoning. You can see the rationales that were being given. And what you find there is, yes, you believe, but you also have to obey. In other words, as, one, as Stott says, you must let Moses finish what Christ has begun. You... You yourself must finish by your obedience to the law of Christ. You must add your works to the works of Christ. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. And many people uh, in the church of Galatia, many Galatians, many Gentiles were discouraged in their faith and were turned away. And so God raised up Paul to liberate these Galatian believers and to clarify uh, what the true gospel was. And he said that, you know, it's not a matter that you're just deserting uh, some kind of doctrine and, 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 and uh, this gospel message, you're rejecting and deserting the one who called you by his grace. This is a personal thing. You cannot separate the gospel of Jesus Christ from the God of Christ. Christ in nothing is the gospel. Christ in something more is no gospel at all. And so here are some questions that, uh, that you should think about. Do you obey God and follow his commands so that he will love you because he loves you, you desire to follow his commands. Are you accepted by God because you do good things or because you are already accepted, you want to do good things? You see that order? That is so critical because if you switch that order, that is not the gospel. And Paul talks about the distortion of the gospel, the perversion of the, the gospel, which means to turn it inside out, to turn it around. To change the gospel in the tiniest bit is to lose it so completely that the new teaching has no right to be called the gospel. There's no middle ground, according to Luther. Now, some might seem, see this as somewhat ridiculous. I mean, how can any rational person think that he or she can add or improve anything that Christ has done. It seems really ridiculous, but this gospel drift is a very subtle movement, and it's very real. 
Many people who, who worship in conservative or Bible-believing churches will say, well, God loves me because I've given my life to Jesus and because I'm good. I've heard it actually in this sanctuary, a prayer, one time. A lady said, well, I don't know why you chose me, God, but you must have saw something good in me. That was her premise. And you know, that idea that God loves us because there's something good in us or something that we've done good, that gets out. And people will say, well, when I get my life together, I'll come to church. Or when I have the right clothes, I'll come to church. And they perceive that the standards for acceptance in God's church is that they have to be together. They have to have their lives together. They have to have the right clothes. Where do they get those impressions? Well, Jesus didn't come after the people that had the right clothes. He didn't come after people that had their lives together. He came after messed up, untogether sinners. For it is by grace you've been saved, Ephesians 2 says, through faith and not from yourselves as the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. But then also in, the, in liberal churches, churches that don't necessarily affirm the authority of God's word, uh, they would say it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a loving and good person. You'll find God if you're a good and loving person. That might sound open-minded, but it rejects the grace as the foundation of God's acceptance. It teaches that good works and being a good person is enough to get you to God, but what about bad people like you and me? How, wh where is our hope? Well, Paul says, For this very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me the worst of sinners Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe and receive eternal life. You know, Paul mentions later in the book of Galatians a test of how you can tell whether there's been a gospel drift in your life. And here's the test question. What has happened to your joy? What has happened to your joy? If you're oppressed by voices and things that condemn you, and you can't hear the Christ who has redeemed you, then you're hearing voices of oppression. That is not from Christ. Why am I feeling so oppressed and anxious? Well, it's because I have forgotten the gospel. I have forgotten that Jesus has redeemed me. The deep default in the human heart is always to return to the mode of self-salvation. Uh, Luther says that while the gospel grace is well known, yet the devil who rages continually seeking to devour us is not dead. Likewise, our flesh and the old man is yet alive. Besides this, all kinds of temptations do aggravate and oppress us on every side so that this doctrine can never be taught, urged, and repeated enough. This, if this doctrine is lost, then this is also the, this doctrine of truth, life, and salvation is also lost and gone. And if this doctrine flourishes, then all good things flourish. He says, we need to teach this article well. Teach it unto others and beat it into their heads continually. It's something that where it's constantly being attacked and we constantly have to beat it into our hearts and into our heads. You know, I, uh, you know, being married uh, often is a mirror in your life, you know, iron sharpening iron and God shapes and molds us and, and God has given me just an incredible uh, partner uh, but Marie and I probably feel things differently 
You know, we'll look at certain things and we'll just see things differently. And she'll, she might get, you know, righteously angry when I just look like I'm passive. And she says, what's wrong with you? Can't you see? You know, what's going on inside you? you know, now, men, I know that we have some challenges. We don't always see things correctly. You know, we get our things, you know, loving our lives well. Uh, but, uh, you know, I know that my life uh, is not as, and a lot of times I just don't feel like it's as mature or spiritually sensitive as my wife. You know, and I'll read scriptures like uh, from the Psalms, do I not hate what you hate, God? You know, I want to hate what God hates. And I want to love what God loves, but I can tell you that my heart is weak in those in, in hating with that pure hatred or loving with the pure love. And I look at Paul and how he responds here, and I say, man, I'm just not there, you know. And, uh, and then I look at my wife, and I can say, man, she is so much more spiritually mature than I am, you know. And you just start feeling this condemnation, all these voices. The gospel is not that God loves you because you're spiritually mature. The gospel is not that God disloves you because you are spiritually immature. The gospel is that God loves you because he loves you in Christ. It's because Jesus is pure and righteous and you've trusted him. That is the gospel. We are free. Every time you look at your sin, you should look ten times at Christ. But finally, the gospel drift. The gospel drift, uh, we need to recognize gospel authority. Uh, so Paul, he says at the beginning, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. Paul is working hard to establish his apostolic authority in his words. Uh, to be an apostle, and Paul is talking about a capital A, there were the 12 apostles, and then there was Paul. Uh, and the qualifications are you had to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And according to 2 Corinthians 12, yet the mark was of an apostle with signs, wonders, and miracles done among people. And so there was only a small group of apostles who were entrusted with the direct revelation of Jesus Christ. And we find in Acts chapter 9 when Paul became, uh, when he had that encounter with Christ, that he went off. And he, in a sense, he really went to a personal seminary mode in the wilderness uh, with Jesus, and he got this revelation from Christ directly. And so Paul is making it very clear that it's not his words that he's communicating, and it's not the words from man that he's communicating. It is direct revelation from Jesus Christ that he has received. You see, the Galatians could have looked at Paul and say, well, you know, who's to say that you're right? You know, we got some good teachers here. They've been around for a long time. You know, they're esteemed leaders. I, we know how they live. I mean, what makes you the one that has truth? Well, because he was an apostle. He was an apostle with the other 12 with direct revelation from the Lord. And so this is a good question. Why should you believe Paul? Because he saw the resurrection Lord, because he did miracle signs and wonders. Okay, now... If there's anybody else that can claim that, well, then we'll have to look at that, but I don't think anybody else is like that. But what do you allow to bind your conscience? 
What do you allow to inform you and to direct your life? What informs your heart concerning the truth? It's interesting that uh, this last, this month, the Atlantic uh, Magazine September issue had this article on the coddling of the American mind. It said, in the name of emotional well-being, college students are increasingly demanding protection from words and ideas they don't like. Now, if you're a college student, you might uh, perceive or experience some of this. It says, something strange is happening at America's colleges and universities. A movement is arising undirected and largely uh, driven by students to scrub campuses clean of words, ideas, and subjects that might cause discomfort or give offense. And it talked about, in December, a Harvard professor wrote an article to the, for the New Yorker about law students asking their fellow professors not to teach rape law, in one case, or even use the word violate, as that violates the law, lest it cause students distress. Another professor protected himself, uh, not using his real name, described in an essay how he gingerly has to teach. And the headline, it was, I'm a liberal professor and my liberal students are terrifying me. Uh, professors are becoming self-protective. A number of popular comedians, including Chris Rock, have stopped performing on college campuses. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Bill Meyer, have publicly condemned the oversensitivity of college students saying too many uh, can't take a joke. And there's words like microaggressions, small actions, or non-malicious word choices are being considered a kind of violence, or the need for trigger warnings, uh, alerts that professors are expected to issue if someone, something in a course, words in a book, might cause strong emotional response or potential distress. And so this article, this is from this article, it says, this new climate is slowly being institutionalized and is affecting what can be said in the classroom. But mental health professionals are saying this is disastrous for education. It's bad for the workplace. It's bad for American democracy. People, helping people with anxiety avoid the things they fear is misguided. It presumes an extraordinary fragility of the collegiate, collegiate psyche with an ultimate aim of turning campuses into safe spaces and will punish anyone who interferes with that aim. It's killing critical thinking and damaging students' preparation for professional life. It's confining students to a cocoon of extra-thin skin culture. The more And more students are feeling overwhelmed and anxious as ever before. But here's the foundation for this movement. It says emotional reasoning is the foundation. One's own subjective feelings has now become accepted evidence of what is defined as offensive versus objective offensive behavior. Emotional reasoning is about letting your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. So that is what's going on in our culture. And I, and I can remember, you know, we've, we've, been in a, we've been in a society where tolerance has really been a core value, that we want to be a people that affirm and accept people and affirm uh, and accept ideas regardless of what they are, and we've been a society that's often been against being judgmental or judgmentalism. We want to be broad-minded, and so we shout tolerance. But now, this article is saying, now what's being shouted is intolerance. Uh, people are being are, are rejecting uh, ideas, rejecting and protecting themselves and condemning 
and it's becoming a judgmental atmosphere. I'm thinking, whoa, you know, these we've what we're witnessing this in our society. And I was thinking of Ephesians chapter four, where Paul is telling believers to grow in their faith and the scriptures and in the community of grace. He says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. You see this, these different things. All these voices, all these voices are speaking into people's consciences and trying to inform them of what's right and what's wrong. So what's informing your conscience? What's directing your heart? What's directing your life about what is true and what is not true? Here's the deal. God made you for freedom. God made you for himself. And only God and his word can liberate you. That's why the psalmist says, I run in the path of your commands because you've set my heart free. We heard the scriptures read from John 4 where Jesus tells the Pharisees, if you abide in my words and my truth abides in you, the truth will set you free. Jesus wants you to be free. In Galatians 5, the Galatians were all bound up with trying to obey all these laws and hearing all these voices. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So are you bound up? Are you hearing voices that you say, I need to do this or I'm not this good or, you know. Here's a question. Who gives you songs in the night? Who tells you that you are beloved? Who tells you that you are a treasured possession? Who tells you that I have loved you with an everlasting love and I'm coming after you? Who tells you that? Jesus. He has come to rescue us. He's come to rescue binded consciences so that you are free and that you're liberated. God's word is given to us by Christ through his apostle as a source of gospel freedom. And so as Paul, he spends significant time and emphasis establishing his apostolic authority, that he indeed has been commissioned with pure divine message of good news to the world. It's different with non-apostles, with spiritual leaders or with pastors. We too are servants of Christ, but we are not infallible. My words are only true as they are consistent with the scriptures themselves. It is a weighty and sobering thing being a preacher or a teacher because the power of influence and misleading people uh, spiritually is, is, is a very sobering thing. James says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that what we who teach are judged more strictly. But God in his mercy, God in his grace has chosen to use weak and fallible servants to handle and teach and proclaim his infallible word. I need to confess just briefly that a couple of weeks ago at the end of the service, I acted unwisely. I had become convinced that something that was said in the leading of worship needed to be corrected, uh, that while truth was spoken, it was not full of grace and seasoned with salt as the scriptures charge us in Colossians 6. But, and now while my brother elders felt some correction was needed, I was wrong in acting independently in how I corrected a brother publicly. I deeply wounded a dear brother. I have asked for and received his forgiveness. Now here's the reality. I'm a fallible pastor. I will miss stuff. I will stumble and fall. 
I will hurt people that I love. And hopefully it will be less when I work with a team of other brother elders, which I believe is the strength of, we call this a Presbyterian form of government, which means basically rule by a team of elders who are stronger together as a team. But even the best leadership systems will fail. We all need a lot of grace. And so where do we get that kind of grace? From the one who will never fail us. What allows us to keep serving with abandoned freedom, even though we will fail and disappoint others? Because we have one who gave himself for our sins and delivered us and rescued us. The gospel is that Christ has done it all, and we have done nothing. The only thing that we can do is to receive. This is the power for our service. It's a source of our joy and freedom and strength. And so, you know, this supper that we're ready to have is a concrete expression of the gospel, of good news to us. I'd like to ask the officers to come forward. You know, this is about receiving. This isn't a potluck. Nobody here brought something to add to this table, did they? This is the Lord's table. He's prepared this for us. We can't bring anything to it. The only thing that you and I can do is receive. This is the gospel. Jesus gives his body, and he gives us his blood. And Jesus reminds us in this meal that we need this gospel reminder. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We need to have this often and to be reminded because there's so much drift of the gospel in our own hearts and lives. And who is this table for? It's for anyone who has claimed Christ, who has confessed their sins, or seeking to lead a repentant life following him in his church. And if you are that person, uh, then I encourage you to partake of this. This is not a table for perfect people. It's for sinners who are seeking repentance before Christ. But if you haven't done that, I ask you to pass this and and to pray that God would reveal himself to you. Any of us uh, leaders or the, even the members of our church would be happy to walk with you through what it means to, to know Christ personally. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us this meal as a concrete reminder that your love is real that you came in the flesh, that you gave yourself for us to deliver us, that you gave yourself to, for our sins and to deliver us and rescue us from this present evil age and deliver our own evil hearts. God, we pray that you would strengthen us now through this meal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the night that Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me.